Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty's Social Impact Pioneers podcast series. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. These interviews with social impact pioneers provide you with insights, different perspectives, advice and maybe a little inspiration, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are tackling some of the world's biggest social challenges so that you can learn from those who have been there before, helping you in your decision-making and action-taking. My social impact pioneer today is Kevin Mutiso. Kevin is a serial entrepreneur. His businesses repeatedly get selected as top startups across Africa. And increasingly, they are focused on delivering not just a commercial gain, but a social impact. We'll find out more about why that is shortly. This podcast isn't just to find out about a new business idea that is really worth investing in, though Kevin is going to share a bit about that too. What we're really here for is a masterclass in how to build a successful business and to be an entrepreneur. Kevin is going to share all from identifying an opportunity to scaling and when to go all in. And if that wasn't enough, Kevin shares where he sees the next big things are at and what skills we should be investing in to get there. Without further ado, Kevin, thank you for joining us and welcome. Thank you, Katie. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here on today. Oh, it's great to have you. And thank you for giving up your time to join us. I know that you're very busy. And I wanted to talk about that busyness that you're working on. So you're the founder and CEO of Startup OYE. And you really dedicated and worked really hard on the sort of financial inclusion element of or for cycle taxi riders. How did you get to this point? What what brought you to this? So first of all, it's it's not OYE, it's OYE. And Oye is a term of endearment in our local language, our local slang called in Sheng. It's called Sheng. So it's Oye, and that's actually why we came up with the name. We wanted it to be relatable to the audience. So you asked, how did I get here? So I've been an entrepreneur most of my life. I can share stories of what I was doing in primary school and secondary school, but they're not so important or not as important as what I started maybe 10 years ago which was a lending company. And we were one of the first companies in the market to do what is known as logbook lending, which is a car, you're a car owner, you need some liquidity on your car and you come to us and we do an appraisal and we issue maybe 50, 60% of the value of the car. This was a very innovative product then because most banks were in lending to SMEs, small and medium term enterprises. And we were easily, we easily got to a thousand clients within five years. We were profitable in 18 months. And it sort of gave me the courage to then jump into what was known then as digital lending. Now, digital lending has gotten a bad rap um, over the years in the West. But in, in Kenya, what, what actually was happening is we were figuring out how to issue small dollar loans to micro, small, and medium enterprises without the you know, prerequisite cost of capital and cost of the loan. 
because what we were now able to do was KYC, credit scoring and disbursement for literally cents on the dollar. And that meant that we could issue loans as low as $5 to $10 to businesses that needed that type of working capital in a cost-efficient way and in a sustainable business way. It was my first time to ever build technology and therefore didn't do very well in my first endeavor. We had an app called Shika. And so when COVID hit in 2020, we decided to shut it down and sort of rethink the model. We had been running Shika for five years, from 2016 up to sort of June 2020. So took a six-month sabbatical and started to think about the mistakes I had made in the previous business. And there were three core mistakes of what I call fatal mistakes that I made. The first is I had designed the business rather, you know, thinking about the infrastructure and how well the infrastructure should be, rather than thinking about what the product was and who the core demographic should be. And that meant that we had a very vanilla product and a product that didn't really differentiate itself in the market. In addition to that, because we had focused on the infrastructure, we relied on a third party, would I, would the, the, the balance sheet provider, so somebody to come and lend through our platform to then make revenue, which meant that you had this beautiful, I like using the analogy of a, of a house in the middle of nowhere and was wait, were waiting for you know, these people to come and rent it. And when that didn't happen, the, just, the business just couldn't scale. The second mistake I made was how I hired. I hired um, a lot of people from corporate entities and didn't take into account that the mindset required for an early stage venture like what we were building then was quite different and therefore ended up with quite a bloated wage bill and unused capacity. And then I think the third thing, and I think the most important thing, is that I hadn't really found my purpose uh, as a human being, as an entrepreneur. and The key thing I've realized from studying uh, big businesses is that the entrepreneur must want to have a positive impact in society of some kind, and it has to be that entrepreneur's mission. And so because I hadn't defined mind well, I didn't really have anything to really offer the world. And so when it came to Oye, and during that reflective six months, I sort of narrowed down to a core demographic, which was now the Boda Boda Rider who to me is an entrepreneur. If you come to Africa, if you've ever been to Africa, you'll know that a Boda Boda rider is, is, is an entry-level entrepreneur. And I, and, and I sort of had made it now my mission to empower entrepreneurs by building these billion-dollar revenue businesses in 10 years. And I thought to myself, if I was to build a financial services product without you know, the limitations of regulation and started with the product first and the customer first, what would a product for Buddha Buddha Rider look like? And so the first thing that then we had to ask ourselves is what are the core problem statements these Buddha Buddha Riders face? And we found that 36% of all traffic accidents in Kenya were Buddha Buddha related. And when we went and tested that with the focus groups we had created while exploring this opportunity, what we found was the cost of going to hospital was actually a major issue in that demographic. And it's not because most of the accidents were fatal or serious accidents. Actually, they are not. 
But what tends to happen is because they don't have any kind of insurance, a lot of the mon- money that they pay to the, for hospital care is out of their own savings or having to borrow just because of how uh, hand-to-mouth they live. And so we thought about how do we then design a product that solves for that problem in a way that they don't have to buy the insurance but can experience the benefits of insurance as they experience our product. And we studied them for a while. And what may seem obvious to many now, which, which wasn't obvious to me, obviously, then, was that they have to fuel every single day. So they have to fuel between jobs. And so we figured that if we're able to negotiate a discount with the petrol stations, use that discount to fund a premium, and then offer a 30-day personal accident cover to this border border rider, we may have something. So we launched in February 24th, 2022, and the idea was every 90 liters of fuel, which is about three liters on average per day, so we're trying to get them to fuel 90 liters in a month, they would get a 30-day cover, a free personal accident cover for the next 30 days. And the main benefit was, and for the purposes of your audience, a $100 hospital cash refund on any expenses they spend. So if they spend $300 at the hospital, would refund up to $100. If they spend $50 at the hospital, would refund up to $50. And it's been quite a journey. We now have 12,000 riders on our platform in six months. I hope that answers the question. Wow. Yes. Goodness gracious, Kevin, that's massive. But also that journey that you've been on, and thank you so much for sharing that so openly with us. I think a lot of people think and look at entrepreneurs and just see the success and fail to look at the failures, actually. Kevin, I wanted to look at slightly the wider piece to start with, because funnily enough, we did some research earlier this year around young people and access to or financial inclusion of. And a lot of the young people that we talked to said insurance wasn't yet on their agenda. It wasn't of interest to them. And the way you just frame that around, you know, it's it's got to be user-led product development. And I was just wondering, therefore, on a wider piece, why financial inclusion is such an in- issue still? Do you have a sort of sense of, of some wider pieces on that? Yes, of course. So as I said, I've been in financial services now for over 10 years and working with small and medium enterprises. The insight I've gained is one, for example, with insurance, apathy is your real competition. It, it isn't another insurance company. And the reason for that is less than 3% of the population has any kind of insurance. As a result, very few people have understood the benefits of insurance. And I think most people know insurance is sold, not bought. And so you're sort of telling somebody, and and I've used the Boda Boda ecosystem as an example, who is living at the border between poverty and low income to spend on a risk that they may never have to deal with as a choice between either food, petrol, school fees, rent, etc., etc. And so in terms of prioritization, insurance, the, the idea of testing a product just to see if it could work just seems too expensive from that perspective. As a result, you have to solve for the apathy piece first. 
And so that's actually part of the way why we designed the product the way we designed it. We designed it thinking we know that the customer knows there's a risk of having an accident. And as you rightly said, do not want to pay, cover that risk. So the question is why? And I and when we did our research, what we found was the, the answer is apathy. When it comes to loans, for example, the biggest issue we've found in my life, in my experience, is the misunderstanding of the use of the loan. And so a lot of, there's a, a large enough majority of borrowers who believe that because they, the, the lender has money, they should be okay not receiving it back from them because they're not doing well financially. And we are, because if we weren't, then why are we lending? And so there's that misunderstanding of the, necess the necessity of having to pay a loan. And that insight I gained from lending to younger demographics who not had the experience of business and entrepreneurship and basically pointed us to say that we need to have some form of financial literacy when it comes to loan issuance. And so, you know, one of the key designs of our future products when it comes to loans is that there'll have to be loans for tools that will enable them or the entrepreneur to make money. And it's I love that we're having this conversation now because literally we tested the next product last started testing the next product on OEA last week, which is a buy now, pay later smartphone purchase. So we realized that a Boda Boda rider makes more money the better quality smartphone they have. And a lot of the products in the market were for entry-level smartphones, but there was no one really doing anything for higher-end smartphones, which the Boda Boda rider could technically afford if the payments were made in a chewable or bite-sized you know, um, piece. So a product where they can buy a $200 to $500 smartphone and spend up, you know, as little as $5 a month paying for that smartphone. So those are the two insights I think I could share on that, on financial inclusion and, and why it's still an issue and what needs, that when why more needs to be done. Thank you so much. And again, you just, you come back again and again to solving or like creating the solution first and then and what people are looking for and then you solve for the problem that underpins that and it's just such an interesting way of doing it. and I want to unpick your serial entrepreneurship brain a little bit more when you are thinking about a problem or looking at a business solution or creating your business proposition at what point or what's needed for you to decide to go all in? Like, what is it? If you were, if you were, your advice to a sort of wannabe entrepreneur, at what point do you go, yeah, that's it. I'm going to throw everything and the kitchen sink into this solution right now versus discarding ideas that actually just don't make the grade? So it's two things. It's not one. The first thing is the potential market size. The thing about business is that businesses have to make money. So the business has to be profitable. And so to have massive impact, then the market potential has to be big. 
And again, I'll use the Boda Boda market as an example of why we chose OA. We decided to build OA the way we are. Is in 2013, when I was lending on the logbook on cars, we only had about 300,000 motorbikes in the country. By 2020, we were at 1.6 million bikes. By 2022, we are now 2.4 million motorbikes. Um, and they say by 2030, there'll be 10 million motorbikes. And so you can see just from that, those numbers alone, the potential of building a large, sustainable, profitable business exists. And so when you then understand the core demographics issues, it means that you can then positively impact those societies also in a massive way. So that's the second thing the impact of the products, the positive impact of the product, because you have a large market, the positive impact of the product will also be massive. So I gave you a statistic earlier on. I said 3% of Kenyans have any type of insurance. If we're able to be successful, if we are successful, or rather when we are successful and we have 100% market share of the Boda Boda ecosystem here in Kenya, that means we'll have 10 million riders on insurance by 2030. And that would mean would have moved the number up from 3% to 25% of Kenyans being insured. So that, you know, you can see there right away that that's that massive impact, positive impact on society, while at the same time building a sustainable, scalable business. And then I'm going to unpick that a little bit more. So you talk about the potential of having a scalable business but the actual technical challenge of taking a small idea and scaling it taking a small business and scaling it to being a business big business is a whole different matter and how do you do that like what's your kind of do you have a bit of a recipe for that or is it sort of stage by stage building so i love the term serial entrepreneur so when you're a serial entrepreneur what you're basically building is a skill set and frameworks for making decisions and for building businesses. And so the, over the years, I have developed something. It's, it's not rocket science. It's four stages. It's ideation phase, experimentation phase, scale phase, and um, maturity phase. And I focus on the ideation phase quite a bit. And so in the ideation phase, what you're really looking for is you're trying to build a minimum viable product for a core demographic. And so the skill sets required in that stage are very different from the skill sets required during the experimentation phase, which is when you're trying to validate assumptions and you now have on-ground operations that have real-world implications if you don't pay tax, if you don't have safety gear, if you don't follow... If you, if you don't have a customer complaint system. So again, that, you know, the experimentation phase has its own set of requirements and they're very specific, but it's also, I've, I've for, sort of figured out how to design that in a quite capital efficient way where we don't, I see some of the startups spending up to a million dollars on, you know, in certain areas, which I think with 250,000, you could potentially still figure out how to build the sustainability. There are other businesses, by the way, in the experimentation phase, you may need up to $100 million just because 
of the nature of the business. So I'm not knocking the one million. I'm just saying that sometimes I see some people over spending in the experimentation phase without me really having to. And then of course you get to the scale phase. The scale phase is 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 a very unique step part of this the business because the business then becomes vulnerable because for different reasons in that you you now need to maintain culture you need to keep the the value system you need to keep the customer engagement at the same level as ideation and experimentation and then you need to keep your product relevant at least to the point where you scale and you can sort of start consolidating a position in your market and then and then maturity phase is basically making sure that your investors are able to then get some form of return um, because again at the end of the day business has to be has to have profit what we are saying now is we have to start building businesses that positively impact society the environment the world but we can't forget the profit and so maturity is when you want to give your investors at every stage a decent return um you also want to cash in um as a as an entrepreneur but at the same time you want to keep make sure that as the business matures it doesn't lose the ideation and experiment experimentation dna even if um some of the early investors and visionaries were part of that and and i think the most successful businesses in the world today you know some of them are hundreds of years old have the same ethos that they had at the beginning of their life so it's making sure then at the maturity stage to ensure that that dna is instilled and, and continues for as long as it can that's sort of my formula but it's it's sort of the mission and mishmash of different people and things i've seen over the years Oh, but a very, very spoiling 101. Thank you very much for sharing that. For everybody who's listening, you've just been treated massively. Kevin, I want to switch gears a little bit now and look at what you're seeing, the trends that you're sort of experiencing, what perhaps others aren't from your quite unique vantage point. What are you seeing that you would like to share with others or point out? Well, I think the first thing is that, you know, East Africa is the place to be in the world today. We've got a very young population. We've got a very connected population. I was very fortunate from my last startup to have traveled across the world. And I I mean, what shocked me each time I landed anywhere was how fast Kenya's internet is compared to everywhere else. And, you know, it's very shocking when you're in a western city and the internet is slower than what you're used to at home but then traveling around the world also just understanding how important english is and how well east africans speak it uh, with natural ease therefore able to connect to a global world i think the last 10 years in kenya have um, would also would in addition to what i've just spoken about is the physical critical physical infrastructure that has been built we've got new ports new roads new railways a lot of people don't know our about 90% of electricity generated and consumed in Kenya is green and so we I'm, you know East Africa is this very unique place in the world today and I'm not surprised that so many startup founders are moving here to start businesses i think that would be the first thing 
The second thing is the speed of adoption of smartphones um, across Africa. I think it's it's understated what the impact of that will be. I personally have seen it in my own life, um, and I think that's where that insight comes from. Until 2010, I had what they known as dumb phones, and then the smartphone, and luckily for me, I could afford a pretty nice one. It changed my life in terms of my ability to move faster, learn. You may not know this, but I never went to university. Um, I'm a university dropout. And so I've had to learn on YouTube, on, 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 on using articles on, on, on the internet. And, you know, I, I've sort of gotten, I learned, for example, I learned game theory using um, a lecture series from, I think, Stanford on YouTube. There's so many books on entrepreneurship, and I've consumed all of them because of the internet on my phone and on my laptop. And the growth that I've witnessed because of that access to knowledge is astounding to me. So, and I know how hungry Kenyans and Africans are just because we want a better life for ourselves. So I think that's also going to be amazing over the next 10 years. And then I think the third thing is. What's happening globally, um, there's a lot of tectonic shifts in sort of global policy and politics and ideology um, that just puts or distracts a lot of areas where and people that should be thinking about solving certain problems to focus on and not to focus on them, if that makes any sense. So, you know, like the war in Ukraine, some of the antagonism you're seeing in between, you know, the elite in America, the, the, the consequences of global warming in, in Asia, you know, yes, they're affecting us, but I think that will also have significant consequences to business and to life in general over the next few years. So, and I think that they're really being understated. I, I think that there will be real world consequences if, you know, good decisions are not made at that global level. Those are the three main insights I'd share. Well, I think I'm booking my ticket and coming your way. <laughs> way. Sounds much rosier um, hanging out in Kenya than it does where I am at the moment, Kevin. And I wanted to pick up on your piece around that. Sorry? It definitely is. <laughs> I was in London just the other day and uh, I was so happy to come back home. <laughs> Oh, count me, honestly, count me in. It's crazy at the moment, Kevin. And I just wanted to pick up on your global tectonic shifts that you just talked about. And I mean, from your experience and seeing how economies can emerge, actually, what would be your um, advice to those who are listening to this conversation around preparing for and weathering such a an economic storm? I think it's, you know, Elon Musk and all these guys speak of first principles. So it's going back to basics. Um, um, I think the first thing you need to do is get your mental and emotional state in place. And so learn how to be happy with your circumstance. Start saving. Don't spend more than you earn. Focus on family. Focus on experiences. Focus on building skill sets. Focus on learning. Focus on building value for others um, whenever you enter a room or enter a discussion or conversation, because then 
whatever happens next, lose your job, if war, if, you know, been another pandemic, if you're sort of always content with where you are in life and, you know, are able to take what you have and be, count your blessings, I think it's a great place to start. I think the second piece of advice would be fiscal discipline. Start saving as much as you can um, and, not, and not, don't, do not spend more than you make. Make wise investments. And when I say wise investments is focus on businesses that are going to be sustainable in that better future. If a business is still not or still denying climate change, the truth is they won't be there in a hundred years. But if a business is focusing on trying to be net zero or trying to have be more just in you know some of the practices, I think that type of fiscal, that type of in, those types of investments will bode well in the long term. And then, I mean, keep tabs. Um, one of the key things I've learned in life is, you know, create a nice objective news feeds. So that you can get good quality information, good quality knowledge that is unbiased, um, so that you can make better decisions for you know people like me who are leaders in business, have a family, can make better decisions for family and business, um, because you're getting unbiased news, unbiased information. Because the other thing that's happening that's crazy in the world is how mis- the, the, the misinformation is real. We just had an election here in Kenya, and if you are following Twitter, you'd think the, both sides were winning at some point, and they were both from credible voices. But you know, if you, what I was very happy about is some of the, a lot of the voices and sources of news that I had created for myself on my feeds were quite objective and biased. And I, I sort of got a sense of what was truly happening at all stages of the election. So those are the three main things. So that. One, you don't go crazy and you you can still eat. Wise advice, Kevin. And one more question of grilling you, because I feel like I'm like literally at the sort of fountain of knowledge here. You picked up a little bit on skills and the fact that you self-taught, you didn't go to university. What skills would you advocate people go out and try and obtain at the moment? What are you seeing as the sort of the key things? I think anyone who can program a language will find an opportunity because it's very remote. So I know somebody who was in a Ukrainian banker, and this is a true story. The guy was in a banker in Ukraine coding for business here in Kenya, earning money, right? So those are the, those types of skills, graphic design, media, sort of, sort of creating content, creating podcasts like these, over time will 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 have a lot of value because you'll be able to create value anywhere from so long as you have an internet connection you can you can create value and earn money i think the second skill one must learn i mean i'm echoing people like warren buffett who say you must learn how to speak speak publicly and express yourself in public settings because you it just helps you market yourself better as an individual and if you find your voice and you find that thing that you're good at, it's always easier just to sell if you're comfortable speaking to crowds and, and communicating effectively. And then third is just basic, basic accounting. You know, money in should be more than money out. 
pay your taxes on time, be compliant. I call it defense. To learn what your defense should look like, whatever business or industry you're in, so that you're always at, at the you know compliant and at the top of your game in terms of paperwork, ETC. And so that means getting to know a bit of law, getting to understand, and that's boring, I, I can't deny. It's very boring to learn tax law and uh, business operations, licensing and all that stuff. But it's very necessary if you want to stay competitive in any sector or industry. So there you go, everybody. We've grilled Kevin to the utmost. We've got all of the information out of him for, for this session. I feel like we could come back, Kevin, with many more questions for you. My final piece to you today, I inferred in our first opening question that you were very busy. What is next for you? What's coming up over your horizon? So we've just finished our, what I'd call the experimentation phase of Oye, we had um, a pilot, we had three pilots running here in Kenya. So we've now got a sense of the amount of capital we will need to scale in Kenya and in the East African region. We have a target of a million border border riders by 2024. So we want to raise about $5 million. So that's what I'll spend the next three to six months focusing on. In addition to that, I sit as the chairman of the Digital Financial Services Association of Kenya, which is um, not, not a lobby group, but a, an industry association that has been lobbying for progressive reform in different sectors within the financial space. And we, we had a big success in 2021 where we got um, a new digital credit provider regulations issued by the central bank and they're quite complete, they're quite progressive. So the next year, what I'm focusing on is tax reform because um, our tax policy isn't predictive. And I think in for business people to make long-term bets um, and deploy capital for, for long gestation periods, they need to have predictable tax policy and some form of tax incentives that um, nurture young sector so that it can create the jobs and opportunities required to ensure that that sort of East Africa I was talking about in the earlier question gets there. So those are the two main things I'll be working on. Personally, I've got two kids um, and my family, so trying to make sure that I make as many good memories with them. Oh, well, massive best of luck with all of those, uh, Kevin. And for anybody who wants to find out more about either your raise or the work that you're doing with your industry association i will put the links into the words that sit alongside this conversation Uh, but i want to draw this now to a close a massive thank you for taking time out uh, to share your wisdom with us today sir thanks thanks for having me and um, please refer to me as kevin not sir (laughs) noted thank you kevin and if you like what you've heard today please do rate and subscribe to us I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty.